Well, for the past few weeks, we have been journeying through this series, Does God Really Love Me? And this morning, it's hard to believe that we are going to bring this, this series to an end. Next week, we'll kind of have a reflective Thanksgiving uh, gathering, kind of uh, sermon meditation, and then we are going into... Advent, and it's time to start talking about the Christmas story already. Is anyone feeling or not ready for the Advent season? You're, Christmas is not on your radar yet. There's a few of you there. We, through this series, Does God Really Love Me? We've been talking about what does it mean to study the scriptures around God's love so that we can truly understand what it means for ourselves, not to just know God's love intellectually, but what does it mean for us to experience trust and understand God's love. That's, that's been the purpose of this series. What does it mean to experience trust? I like the word trust and understand, to fully grasp God's love. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at several different topics. We've looked at what is perfect love? What does perfect love look like when it's revealed? We've looked at God's uh, love and how it's breathtaking. It's expansive. It's unshakable. I hope you found this, this series helpful, and through this series, I've been asking you to do one major thing, and that is to commit to reading the previous week's passage every day throughout the week, and just kind of meditating on it. And, and the reason I'm asking you to do that is because so often, scriptures have so much in them that we don't get just here on a Sunday morning. And, and a lot of times, the longer we sit with them, the more we fully grasp more about God's love, but also the more we're able to see what God wants to teach us personally about how we can grow in our understanding or our experience or our trust in God's love. A few weeks ago, I mentioned some habits or traps that might inhibit us from experiencing God's love. And I referred to them as identity thieves. You see, if we are created from love, by love, for love, and to love, then when we walk in reconciliation and faith with God, when we are reconciled, when we are in faith with God, we find that God automatically places love at the core of our identity. It's who we are. It's why our vision statement says that we are learning to live and love like Jesus the love of God is and becomes who we are. Now, we saw that John declared God is love, and therefore when we are transformed by love, we have been transformed, we have been invested in by perfect love. And for that reason, love should be one of the most easily identical traits or characters that are at the core of who we are. <coughs> if our love is our identity... And if love is at the core of who our identity is in Jesus, then anything that looks to rob us of experiencing, trusting, and understanding that love is an identity thief. Truthfully, if sin is understood as missing the mark, I told you a couple weeks ago that the concept of sin includes in with it this idea of an arrow missing the target, the, the bullseye, the mark. If, if sin is understood as missing the mark, then whatever we allow 
to rob us of experiencing, trusting, and understanding the love of God is not only just an identity thief, but it is also sin. This morning, as we bring our series to an end, I want to look at what I think is one of the biggest identity thieves in our identity with Jesus. Now, I'm just curious if you would think, you know, what is it that, that robs you the most of God's love? Or what is it that you think robs us of our uh, understanding and experience and trust of God's love the most as a culture or as a church? I wonder what answers we would come up with. As I began to think about it, and I considered what our, our climate uh, as a culture, our culture, our church community, uh, our neighborhoods, our spheres of influence, neighboring church communities, our societal norms, as I looked at all those things and said, what is it that I think robs us the most of experiencing, trusting, and understanding God's love? I think it is the identity theft thief of exhaustion. I believe the more that we run ourselves ragged, the more we fill the space in our lives with stuff, the more we sin by forgetting how to sit before the Lord. Let me say it again. The more we sin by merely forgetting to sit before the Lord, <clears throat> we begin to root ourselves in anything but the contentment of God. And this morning is my hope that we see the Spirit of God inviting us, the same invitation that Jesus is going to invite us with in this passage, to rest in the presence of the Lord. Now, let's be honest. Too often, too few of us truly rest. And it, for some reason, what happens is we run around like a bunch of holy energizer bunnies. You guys remember those commercials at Christmas time throughout my childhood? You always knew the energizer bunny commercial was coming on sometime, somewhere. He even showed up in Super Bowl ads, right? He was just that pink bunny that's banging a drum. It's his Energizer buddy. He keeps going and going and going and going and going. Well, I mean, eventually he's got to run out of batteries, right? This is how we live our lives too often, and we expect God to bless us in there as if there's something holy about being a holy Energizer bunny. Rest and sleep are an important part of our lives. And sometimes sleep, like breathing, or rest, like breathing, is something we take for granted. Now, let me rephrase that for a moment so I can have a moment of confession. Sometimes, like breathing, sleep and rest is something I take for granted. You know, as a kid, I was thinking this week, as, as the youth had an all-nighter, I loved pulling all-nighters. Katie can testify, even when we got married, there would be many times like, yeah, I just don't really need to sleep tonight. I'm just going to stay up all night, work on something, and then go to work in the morning. And that was fine with me. I didn't feel that I needed sleep. The older we get, though, <laughs> the harder it is, right? It's almost like it takes three days to recover from one night of doing that. But even today, I find that I fail at truly resting or sleeping. So many times I work eight-hour days in the office six days a week. I come home, hang out with my kids, only to work on more church-related matters to about 10. And then from 10 to about midnight, sometimes even to 3 in the morning when my homework is due, I'm up working on assignments. Then at 6.30 or 7 a.m. when I finally can get my body out of the bed, I expect my body to do it all again. Then 
For some reason, we get these weeks with funerals and other things going in, and I think that I can do that for seven days a week. And if there were eight days in a week, I'm going to be honest, I probably think I could do it eight days a week. Now, now it's your turn to confess. It's not just me that takes sleep and rest for granted. How many of you would admit that you take sleep and rest, at least for seasons in your life, for granted? That you just keep going and going and going. You know, sleep and rest is something we tell ourselves and our friends that we will fit in at some point. This isn't true of everyone. I mean, let's be honest, there are seasons for us or there are, are people in our lives that are just pure lazy as well. And we look at them, and so that makes us justified in our, in our ability to work even harder. Going back to that meme or that comic I saw on Facebook, there's this one point where the woman is yelling to the cat, I want revival in my church. And the cat says, you can't even show up to church when it's raining, right? This is laziness, and that's a totally different topic. The danger in loving sleep too much and too little has a lot of implications for us when we talk about what it means to experience, to trust, and understand the love of God. Most of us approach rest in the same way that we approach sleep. We plan to rest, we just never get around to it. The other night, I took my family to Borders, and I was like, okay, or Barnes & Noble, and I'm going to buy this new book, and uh, I decided I was going to finally do some recreational reading. I enjoy that. How many people feel that you rest by doing recreational reading, sitting down with a great book? And so I was in the mood to read a classic, and so I bought two books by H.G. Wells. There's called The Time Machine, and the war of the the war the war, if I can speak today, of the worlds. You don't get to get the same concept by watching the movie. I'm just gonna tell you that right now. And I said, I'm gonna sit down and read these books and rest. Well now a week later, those books are still exactly the same bag with the receipt that they came home in. Somewhere along the line, as I'm taking three classes each with 3,000 pages of required reading with over 10 weeks, I don't have time to fit in recreational reading in the midst of 10,000 pages of required reading. Do you know who takes, who never takes sleep for granted? Those who struggle sleeping? The National Sleep Foundation says that 50 to 60 million people in the U.S., struggle with chronic sleep disorders. They also point out that those who misuse sleep or do not, uh, aren't able to achieve sleep are affected by that. There are chronic health problems that happen, both mental and physical, and as I'll point out in a little bit, I think also spiritual. They, the National Sleep Foundation points out intermittent sleep problems can significantly diminish health. They can diminish alertness and safety. Untreated sleep disorders have been linked to, now listen, maybe you have some of these diagnoses, hypertension, heart disease, stroke, depression, diabetes, and other chronic diseases. The National Highway Traffic Administration has done a report recently. It said that just from 2013, to 2017, a period of four years, there was over 4,111 deaths 
related to motor vehicle crashes in which the root cause was drowsy driving. This isn't surprising for you. We all admit that, that we take sleep and rest for granted. But we forget to think about the consequences. Sleep and rest are important. But this morning I want to talk about a different kind of rest. I want to talk about spiritual rest and the implications of what happens when we don't actually carve out intentionally time to experience trust and understand God's love by actually spending time with him, to intentionally pursue time with him. And I think that alone is really one of the biggest identity thieves on why we can say, oh, you know, sometimes I just feel like I can't truly trust and know that God's there, or I just don't feel that I can truly experience and trust and understand His love. It's a foreign concept to me. And that's because we keep running like these Energizer buddies that keep going and going and going and going and going, and you get the point. And then we say, God, just meet us on that. And God's like, whoa. I didn't design you to do that. <laughs> I designed you to come where I'm at. That's where the rest is. That's where I'm at. Often I believe that in seasons that we wrestle with believing or experiencing or trusting or understanding the love of God, it's because far too often we've sit down on spiritual rest too much. We have allowed those other things to drive us to exhaustion. And then it robs our identity of love. In fact, we fill things in our weekends, in our lives, in our every waking moments where the silence of rest feels awkward. I want us to realize how awkward the silence of rest has become to us. I'm going to set a timer here in a minute for a minute. Just one minute. And as I do that, I'm going to ask that you do not talk not whisper, do not shift your Bible around, don't think about the grumbling in your stomach, don't think about who should have really been fined in the Steelers game the other night, right? How did the instigator not get it? I wasn't going there. All right. How did, uh, as we sit there, I want you to only focus on openness to what God may have for you in this moment. I want you to realize that rest is found in the silence. Think about it in the story of Elijah. So Elijah is asked by God to go to stand on the mountain before the Lord. It says the Lord passed by and there was a great strong wind and the mountains were even shook and rocks broke. But God was not in that wind. And then there was an earthquake and, and the earth shook and God was not in the earthquake. Then there was fire and the hillsides caught with flame. But even after that, God was not in the fire. He's not in the busyness, in the calamity, in, the, in the, the overwhelming power of the world. He is merely a still, small voice. In fact, that passage says, So it was that Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face. So he hears the still, small voice. He is moved by it. He wraps his face in a mantle, this thing that prophets would carry. And he went out and he stood into the entrance of the cave. Most likely at night, he stood out in the silence, realizing God was nowhere else. And it's then that the voice came to him and said, What are you doing here? We find the voice, the direction of God in the silence. 
So for one minute, let's just sit with our palms out, our hearts open, waiting and listening to the Lord. So Lord, we just ask that you make yourself known in what has become awkward for us, this, this silence of rest. many of us, silence has become an awkward. Some of us, a minute might feel quick. For others of us, because we fill our silence with music and with movies, because we fill our free time with running our kids around, because we think we need to be doing something like fishing or hunting or playing baseball to engage the presence of God, sitting in silence, doing nothing, comes with oppression. It is hard for us. This is the space that we find Elijah is invited. But it's not the only time that we see God invite his followers. And we're going to look at a few of those today. It's not the only time we find him invite his followers into rest. In Matthew 11, the passage that we are going to look at today, and if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew 11 28 through 30 is just three short verses. As you're finding it, let me just say this, that in this Matthew 11 passage is some awesome things happening. It's just this, this beautiful story, right? Jesus has just emerged. Look at the beginning there, 11.1. He has just emerged from an extended time of being out of the public eye, being in rest with his disciples. In that space... All they had to do was sit with Jesus. Jesus had emerged from this, and uh, he, he kind of began to instruct his, his 12 followers in that space, and now he's going into public ministry. There's another way I want you to see that. Remember this. Jesus' 12 disciples have just followed Jesus now into public ministry after spending an extended time of rest, just sitting in the presence of Jesus. That was the, the scene that Matthew 11 opens up with. So Matthew 11, then Jesus begins to emerge into the towns of Galilee, and he begins to teach and preach with his 12 followers following around him. And as he's doing that, we know the story well, most of us, right? John the Baptist sends a messenger, one of his followers, his disciples, and he says, hey, Jesus, I'm about to, to be killed. I just want to make sure I'm throwing my towel in with the right guy. Jesus responds, hey, go back and tell John, the blind can see, 
the deaf can hear, and so on, right? Then right after that, Jesus says, no one in this generation is as good as John the Baptist. Then we see Jesus do something publicly. He begins to call out the sins, the cultural sins of the people at the time. Jesus transitions by going, now to what can I compare this generation? He begins to call out the cultural sins. Then Matthew says that Jesus moves into a time where he begins to denounce or rebuke. We don't like that word, right? He began to rebuke the cities in which he had taught and did miracles and in which the people had not repented of their cultural rhythms of disbelief. Jesus publicly denounces them for not repenting of their sins. My attempt in this sermon message is to begin to imagine how we might look at the sins of our culture and repent from them. One of those sins is being too busy to the point of exhaustion. And it's exactly what we actually are seeing in this story as well. Right after denouncing these stories, Jesus begins to set up a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world and shows that they are quite opposite. In fact, one is a culture of weighty busyness, and the other is a culture of rest. In this generation in which Jesus is addressing, they might have set a motto for themselves like, busyness is next to godliness. We say the same things. The devil's hand, the, the, the idle hands are... Yeah, the devil's playground or the devil's workshop. We believe the same thing. The more we keep busy, the more religious we are. And that's true. But what we're going to see here, Jesus draws a line in his sand that actually says his character, his love is experienced in a whole different way. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary. This is Jesus standing up after he's just denounced and, and created this divide of kingdoms. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of my favorite biblical commentaries, a guy of another generation by the name of William Barclay, writes this about this passage. He says, if to sum this passage up, it looks like this. Jesus spoke to men who were desperately trying to find God. It's another generation. You can fit women in there too. You guys aren't off the hook either. Jesus spoke to men and writes about who were desperately trying to find God and who were desperately trying to find good and who were finding the tasks impossible and who were driven to weariness and despair, or we might say exhaustion. For these religiously orthodox individuals of the Jewish faith, busyness was next to godliness. And that led them to a religion that was full of burden and rules and weightiness. In fact, in another story, Jesus in Matthew actually looks at the Pharisees and he points at them and he says, 
they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads, and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are actually not willing to lift even a finger to move them. Here in this passage, Jesus points out that religion and the way that we religiously live busy lives can be an endless cycle of involvements, rules, expectations, and regulations that need to be met or observed. Now, this might not be true of our culture anymore around the religious aspect, but just switch that out and think about the religious ways you may watch sports, take your kids to sports, go hunting, fishing, shopping, movie binging, or fill in the blank. You may not be religiously weighted to the expectations of the church or organized religion anymore, but there is stuff in your life that has taken that role, that has become a religious burden. We live burdened lives. And that's exactly why it was so starking for Jesus' audience to hear him say, Come to me, all of you who are weary. Now you might have noticed that this story also shows up in other gospel accounts. It shows up in some of the other gospels. But it doesn't follow up in this order. It actually appears in different places. Anybody know why? Why does Matthew record an order of Jesus' ministry that is different than others' recollection. Does that hurt our understanding of the authority of scriptures? Maybe Mark says it happens here, but Matthew says it happens over here. Why? Have you ever thought about that? Well, there's something really important to understand about Matthew. He's a midrash storyteller. It's a, it's a Jewish storytelling that purposely will twist with timelines and make things clash with themselves in the middle of a story to make a point. Matthew, the whole book, if we were summarizing it, I think it's really wrapped up around three things. He wants to show his Jewish audience that Jesus has fulfilled every prophecy out there. And that's why it starts with the genealogy and ends with the go and make disciples. Then we see he's also really concerned about the way the rule and the reign. He keeps talking about how Jesus came preaching the kingdom. And the kingdom does this, and the kingdom does that. And that's the third reason, is he wants to show the good news of the rule and the reign of God and how it breaks into the present. So for Matthew, as he's writing to his audience, he twists the timeline to make an important junction here. He wants his narrative to illustrate that the way that the kingdom of God's culture crashes, invades, or clashes with the culture of this world. We see Jesus call out the cultural sins, and then, bam, my kingdom's different. It doesn't live like that. That's Matthew's intent here. There are three quick things I want us to take from this verse that are worth talking about. First, Jesus says, Come to me, all of you who are weary, burdened, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation we see God inviting us to throughout the whole biblical story. The word Matthew uses here for rest is really important. It replies or implies this. The cause or permit, I permit you to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover and collect strength. 
The word itself is an actual word, and it implies to be patient with expectation. Patient with expectation. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, he's saying the type of rest that he's giving him is one that is carved out with patient expectation. I love that idea. And then he says this. After you've discovered that, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He says that in verse 29. And then he comes back to this idea in verse 30. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, most of us who have grown up in the church and heard stories of yokes or have grown up on farms know what a yoke is, right? It is this wooden kind of heavy plank that uh, cross piece that is fastened over two animals' necks, usually like an oxen or a horse, and then they must lead or pull a wagon or a cart or something. And in Jewish times, this imagery was used time and time again. It was very common for Pharisees and teachers of the law to say that the Old Testament, what we now refer to as the Old Testament, so the Torah or the law, is this yoke of servitude and obedience. They would constantly speak about it in this heavy, burdened sort of way in which you had to carry. Now, think about this. Like rest, the easy yoke of Jesus is not an invitation to a life of ease, but of deliverance from the artificial burdens of human religion that Jesus is calling out. They have grown up with this idea that religion should be a burden, and Jesus is like, ah, come take my yoke. It's a completely different thing. And something important to think about with yoke is we often talk about that when you have a yoke on, you are forced to go where your master wants to go. But there's another piece to it. Two oxen are forced into community by one wooden piece. So guess what has to happen to those two oxen? They not only have to listen to their master and where he's guiding them or she is guiding them, but they also are forced into mutual submission with each other. One oxen can't say, I want to go here, and the other says, I want to go here. So first we learn that Jesus' rest says, carve out patient time with expectation, but we also see that his rest says this. You need to be in mutual submission with each other and with me leading you. And that is not only just mutual submission to me, but you need to understand that it is surrender, it is sacrifice and obedience to where I am leading you. Back to those comics or those memes on Facebook. I saw one where the girl is saying, God is telling me to go to a different church. And the cat says, no, you just got caught on the carpet for some of the stuff you were doing. Far too often, mutual submission, where we are actually vulnerable and accountable to each other, is hard. However, what he gives us to carry isn't heavy. Because unlike the Pharisees, he's there with us. We experience his love through mutual submission, but also through surrender, submission, and obedience. And the third thing that we find in this is this. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now here, Jesus is speaking to the character of God, to the nature of God, to his character. In other words, 
to experience who I am, which John says is love. God is love. To experience who I am, you must come. Part about patient expectation, live in mutual submission, be willing to sacrifice, surrender, and live in obedience. And then when you figure that out, when you walk with me in that way, I'm alongside you, and my love comes to your side. But see, we far too often would rather live like the Pharisees and just keep working and expect God to just kind of plug and play his love in our lives as we can. The invitation we sense in this passage isn't unique to this story or to Elijah. When Moses is leading God's people, God addresses Moses with the same invitation. The Lord replied to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. David in Psalm 23, as he's reflecting on the way God has led him time and time again, he he describes this relationship. He says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. What do you do in a green pasture? And when you're laying down, you fall asleep. He leads me beside still waters. He refreshes or rests my soul. Mark tells this story where the disciples are so busy and they've been following Jesus and being busy for Jesus so much, Jesus realizes they have forgotten to eat. We do that too, right? Oh, it's 3 o'clock. i got to pick my daughter up at 3.30. I haven't had lunch yet. Anybody ever do things like that? Okay, it's just me. And so uh, Mark's narrative reads, Jesus said to them, as he realizes they haven't stopped and eaten, Come with me by yourselves, carry the yoke together, to a quiet place and get some rest. Key being, come with me to find rest. All these passages are this eschatological invitation to be reconciled back to the original order. God's created and what will be his eternal order of creation. A rhythm that God expects us to keep for a reason. A rhythm of rest. God expects it so much that he actually wrote it on stone twice to make sure that we incorporated it. Right in the Ten Commandments it says, Six days you labor and do work, but on the seventh days you will rest. You will not do any work. So on the back side of your bulletin, there's just three things that I think we need to take away from this passage. First, We must face our reality. We must face our reality. We must pay attention that we have forgotten what it means to sit in silence. We must need to to remember what it means to carve out intentionally time in which we are expectant in our patience, where we have submitted ourselves mutually and we are looking for God's lead. Secondly, we must embrace God's promise. He promises us that if we come to him for rest, we will not only find rest, we will find the character of love, or the character of God, which includes God is love. You know, I really can't experience God's love right now. Have you stopped being busy and just allowed yourself to accept the invitation to come and rest? And third, we must own that rest is defined as a gift from God. And if it's a gift from God, it's something to be used, then it's also a form of worship. It's a declaration of trust. If you can stop being busy, you're actually saying for a minute, I don't need to do this, God. I trust that you will do this. 
And it's an assertion that you actually believe God lovingly cares for you. If you keep doing everything and keep being busy, the only thing you're concerned about is you. If I keep being busy, I'm concerned with me. If we don't carve out this time, we actually have forgotten that God lovingly cares. So what do we take away from this? Our inability to rest in God's presence makes us people with spiritual convictions that are living as functional atheists at best. It's hard to believe that we can't experience, trust, and understand God's love or lest we actually rest. However, there is hope. The key is this. To experience the trust, to understand the love of God, it means simply not doing not giving you rules or regulations or expectations. I'm merely telling you the beginning of Matthew 11 summarizes the most important thing that Jesus is inviting them to. The 12 were with Jesus in instruction. Jesus invites them, the public crowd, come and rest. That space is what I want. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me. You will recover your life, and I would show you real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I will not lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you, Jesus says. Keep company with me, and you will learn how to live freely and lightly. As the worship team comes forward, I invite you to think about this. Jesus looked at a busy culture, and he began to call out the sins of the culture. Then he begins to rebuke those who do not repent, and he invites them into mutual submission, into surrender, to submission and obedience with him. And maybe we just need to do what Jesus wants a little bit. And that is to repent of the places we have failed to hit the mark. For that culture, for our culture, one of the places we have failed the most to hit the mark is this. Sitting, resting, mutually submitting. I know that I keep myself too busy. And I'm sure if you were honest with yourself, you keep yourself too busy as well. Our body needs sleep. You know this, so sleep. Your body also needs spiritual rest. So give in to the yoke that Jesus invites you to carry. It's there. We will learn the character of God and learn to experience, trust, and understand it. I invite you to stand.